angry, 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 angry at arthritis. Welcome to another episode of Angry at Arthritis, the patient's guide to osteoarthritis. I'm your host, Steve O'Keefe, and we're here to help you learn more about OA and emerging cures and treatments. If you're interested in supporting new and emerging science and treatments for osteoarthritis, please hit the donate button on our website, angryarthritis.org. And thank you. Okay, let's get right to it. This is our highest octane science episode of Angry at Arthritis. Time defying back to the future meets osteoarthritis as we look under the hood at the Stanford University super science of microfracture 2.0. Let me say this DeLorean ain't your grandfather's microfracture. You see, microfracture is a 1950s era blunt instrument procedure that generates only inferior retread cartilage. 2.0 is to 1.0, well, what the Model T is to a Tesla. We'll explore not just how to create new, high-quality cartilage, but further, the potential to drink from the fountain of youth to reverse aging itself. Let me warn you, you're going to need your slide rule and pocket protector, because we're really going to geek out on skeletal stem cells, the flow cytometer, not to be confused with the flux capacitor, cloning and dolly the sheep, painting jelly beans, signaling proteins, as well as Jack and the Beanstalk. Strap in with Dr. Chuck Chan of Stanford. The professor Siddhartha Mukherjee describes as a brilliant insomniac punk rocker. So let's get that DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour and see if we can manage to go back to the future. Chuck Chan is an assistant professor at the Stem Cell Institute and Department of Surgery at Stanford School of Medicine. His research focuses on the biology of aging in stem cells. He co-discovered skeletal stem cells with the famous author Siddhartha Mukherjee and pioneered how to isolate specific bone, cartilage, and blood vessel stem cell and progenitor cells. Dr. Chan's rocking new science to identify and grow new cartilage. A 21st century Prometheus, he's created new cartilage in rats and monkeys, and he's ready to enter clinical trials to create new cartilage in humans. Chuck, welcome to Angry Arthritis. Thank you so much, Steve, for this wonderful opportunity. I'm really grateful to you and to our audience for their interest in learning more about this terrible disease. Thank you, sir. And I would say for our listeners that I first read about Dr. Chan and Sadako Mukherjee's book, Song of the Cell, chapter 19. So it's, I feel like I'm talking to a rock star. He's a wonderful friend, and he's also the co-discoverer of the mouse skeletal stem cells. In fact, we published our landmark papers together in Cell back in 2015. I very much enjoyed his book. In fact, a number of his books. So uh, that's good to know. Could you tell us where you live and what you do? Yes, I live in a little town that's north of Palo Alto, which is where Stanford University is situated. 
I live in this town is called Redwood City. Beautiful spot indeed. How long have you been engaged in the field? And what was it that drew you to osteoarthritis? So I became interested in stem cells back when I was an undergraduate student in Berkeley. And at the time, the biggest scientific finding was Dolly, the sheep that was cloned from mammalian cells. I had always been interested in this concept of the fountain of youth. I told my grade school teachers that I wanted to be a scientist and the task that they set upon me was to find a fountain of youth. And at the time when Dolly was first announced, it was part of the belief that the genetic material in our body becomes irreversibly changed as we develop and as we get older. So there was no real way to turn back the clock, so to speak. But what Dolly proved, you took this adult breast cell and you basically turn it back into what we call an embryonic stem cell, which is the earliest cell type. It's a step back from a fertilized egg. You turn the clock all the way back. And you know that principle finding really changed the way people think about aging. And some of my colleagues now are trying to find chemical factors that can turn back the clock, you know, even in a living animal. It became a really exciting area to look into. Now, David so, Sinclair has obviously, you know, lit that whole section up. I guess he's at, at Harvard, but, uh, and I've listened to your right. Yes. With, uh, yes. Huge, good deal on this. On yes. This as we get older, we become more interested in turning back the clock. It would be great if we had more time, you know, to do the things we want to do. I had always been kind of like captivated by that idea. And that led me to ask, well, what are the essential cell types that forms tissues? What does aging have to do with the cell types that form tissues? And that's let's, what led me to Stanford. Uh-huh. Let's talk a little more about osteoarthritis in more detail mm -hmm. in this aging process. Yes. We were talking a little bit earlier about your discovery of skeletal stem cells and the way that you identified specific types of cells within those skeletal stem cells. Could you explain that process a little bit? Sure. At Stanford, they developed a specific machine that my mentor, Irv Weissman, used to identify the first tissue-specific stem cell. And that was the blood-forming stem cell, also known as the hematopoietic stem cell. When you hear patients get a bone marrow transplant, it is this stem cell that is transplanted. And this stem cell at the single cell level has the ability to make all of the cells of the blood, including red blood cells, platelets, but also the cells of the immune system. And he was able to accomplish this because of a unique machine that was invented at Stanford called the flow cytometer. And the Hertzenbergs who developed this machine and this technology called FACS, fluorescent activated cell sorting, had established a lot of protocols for sorting cell types, which I then applied to asking what are the cell types that makes cartilage. This machine can be characterized as a jelly bean sorter. You get jelly beans from of all of these different colors. And with this machine called a flow cytometer, you can specifically ask it to pick out 
just the red jelly beans or just the green jelly beans or jelly beans that contains blue and purple polka dots, for instance. Then you can collect all of these different jelly bean types and you can ask what's special about them. So just to pause there for a second, you're identifying the different types of cells, the different types of skeletal stem cells. And then mm -hmm. once you've identified that there are red, green, blue, what you will, colored cells, then what you're going to do is try to understand, okay, now what are the attributes of blue versus green? Versus That's right. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yep. yep. You know, just kind of going from jelly beans to beans, yep. I'm sure some people in the audience have heard of Jack and a Beanstalk, right? Initially, you know, you plant this bean and you ask, what does it do? In the case of Jack, it turned into something enormous. So what we did is we took all of these different colored beans and we planted them in the body. And we asked, what do they become? Some of the beans that we transplanted from the bone marrow become blood vessels, but not bones. Some turned into nerves, but not blood vessels. And then there were some that turned into cartilage and bones. And by focusing on these beans, we found that there was this particular cell type that can form both bone, cartilage, and fibrous tissue. And it had the important ability to make more of itself. And I, I, Chuck, are you doing that in animals or in people? We have so far done this in animals. Yep. And then we would obtain human tissues and we would go through the same process and transplant them into animals that no longer have an immune system. So they cannot reject the type of tissue that you transplant into them, including human tissues. And that's how we also found the human skeletal stem cell. So the first thing you, you did was to identify the human skeletal stem cell. And yes. then you look within those stem cells to identify different types of cells. And then you try to identify what the attributes or what those stem cells would create. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So the stem cell, the skeletal stem cells, right? It has this ability to make more of itself, but it can also make a wide variety of cell type, bone, cartilage, tendons, et cetera. Yes. What we then do is we found the daughter cells that the stem cell produces that becomes specialized just for making bones, just for making cartilage, and just for making tendons. That led us to figuring out what is the genetic process and what is the programming that the stem cell has to go through before it makes just the daughter cells that makes bone, cartilage, or these other types of tissues. Moreover, those programming, when we track it all the way back to its source, we found that they can be controlled by giving specific chemicals to the stem cells. And these chemicals constitute a specific type of command that tells the stem cells either to make bone or cartilage or to make more of itself. And these chemicals are proteins, is that correct? That is correct. These proteins are normally factors that stem cells use to communicate with each other because stem cells have a very complicated job, you know? They're distributed in tissues, but they need to know exactly the amount of tissues that they're supposed to make because otherwise everything would go out of whack. You know, if right. you 
have too much cartilage or too much bones, it's not good. Or if you have too much bone and cartilage in one place, but not in another, it changes the shape of the bones in such a way that it no longer has a right type of architecture. If you think about the joints, right, it's a very specific, elegant shape. And that shape, all of those shapes, microscopically, are controlled by the activity of the stem cells. And the stem so cells has to know how to make just the right amount by communicating with each other through these signals that we identify. Okay. So you've identified the skeletal stem cells. You've identified the different types of skeletal stem cells. And you've identified what they produce, and then you've identified or created a protein, which is a growth factor, a way to turn on or regulate the reproduction of those cells, which allows you to then create cartilage. Is that correct? That is absolutely right. So let's talk about now, this is all part of this microfracture 2.0. Procedure. Now, microfracture has been around for a long time, and there aren't a huge number of fans of microfractures, you know. And the challenge of microfracture, if I might characterize my understanding, is that it's been around for, let's say, maybe since the 50s. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really drilling into the bone in order to surface bone marrow stem cells. The skeletal stem cells, yes. And then that produces cartilage, but it's traditionally been an inferior type of cartilage, what they call fibrous cartilage. That's right. Is that correct? That's right. Actually, it's not true cartilage that it forms, although they call it fibrocartilage. They call it fibrocartilage for a reason, because the type of cells that the tissue that's performed is fibrous. You know, it's just like certain types of woody material. It's not the bouncy type of cells called chondrocyte that makes up cartilage. This fibrous cartilage that they find basically is kind of like tendons. And it performs an essential function for these patients because at least it glues everything together so that you don't have other pieces of cartilage sloughing off. But the problem is that because its purpose, it's just a Band-Aid, right? It doesn't have the same mechanical capability of true cartilage. And so when you walk on it, eventually it wears away to the point where you back, you're kind of like back where you started, you know, just bones rubbing on bones. So let's contrast Uh microfracture 1.0 to microfracture 2.0. Tell us why your approach is better, why your approach is different, please. Well, I think it's great that you characterize our approach as microfracture 2.0, because indeed it is an evolution of traditional microfracture 1.0. We asked where this fibrous material for 1.0 comes from. Why do we see the scar material, but not true cartilage? And what we found to our delights was that it leads back to the skeletal stem cell. So the skeletal stem cell now in the adults, right? Actually, what we did is we did microfracture and then we transplant those cells into parts of the body that normally doesn't contain bone and cartilage, and they form cartilage. So microfracture-activated skeletal stem cells still possess the ability to form cartilage. But somehow, in that environment, they're getting the wrong signals, the wrong commands. And our approach in 2.0 was to ask, why is it forming fibrocartilage and not true cartilage? now that we realize it's coming from the same stem cell. 
And when we identify these signals and we apply them, now the stem cells, instead of making fibrous cartilage, it makes true cartilage. So you're doing the same procedure in terms of drilling into the bone in order yes. to liberate the skeletal stem cells. Yes. But you're hitting them with specific proteins yes. in order to change the type of reaction. So that That's right. Yeah. So these stem cells are coming out. So we hit them with two signals. First, because we lose stem cells as we get older, we give them a signal that says, make more of yourself. We recall stem cells has that special ability. They can make more of themselves. We ask them to make a lot more of themselves. And then the second signal it says, we tell them is, don't make fibrous material, make cartilage. And when you combine them together, you can make ample supplies of cartilage. Fantastic. And this is like well integrated into bones too. That's really exciting. Mm -hmm. So where are you in your research today? So originally when our article came out, at that point, we showed that we can regenerate cartilage in the knees of mice. And this is durable cartilage. It lasts for four months, which is an eighth of a mouse's lifespan. Mice only lives for two years. So it's really durable cartilage. It allows these mice to walk normally again, and it dramatically reduces their pain. So then we ask, does it form cartilage in human tissues? At that point, we can't actually do a clinical trial yet. But what we did is we transplanted human tissues into mice that no longer have an immune system. And these transplanted human joint tissues, we used it as a test site to ask, well, this human joint tissue, can it regrow cartilage if we give them the same signals and we perform microfracture on it? And indeed it did. It formed a lot of cartilage. These combination of factors can give rise to cartilage in mice and humans. And, you know, we were very happy to share that news in nature medicine. And, you know, for better or worse, New York Times also picked up the story and as the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. And so, you know, we've just been receiving a lot of emails from people interested in trying out the procedure. In order to make sure things are safe, there's still a lot of tests we have to do. The thing that we're doing now is we're testing these factors in large animals. Specifically, Yucatan pigs. Yeah, I mean, your approach, I can see how yourself and Siddhartha work together because your approach is very parallel to a lot of the stuff that he discusses in mm -hmm. his book in terms of the way he approaches things. So uh, Yes, right. So, you know, we've we got to make sure that these, this material forms enough cartilage to withstand the weight of a human. Right. And that's why we're testing them in pigs. And it's right now, what it seems is the factors give rise to the same cartilage that we see in mice, xenografted human tissues, and now we see they also work in Yucatan pigs. A lot so, of the, the work in osteoarthritis is focused on knees. Mm -hmm. Are you looking at other joints other than knees? Oh, absolutely. No, we're, we're taking these factors and we're tinkering them a little bit and we're going to see if it works in the um, temporal mandibular joint. That's a frequent area to have actually osteoarthritis. Is that in um, the jaw? That's in the jaw. And it's, you know, quite painful. If, I mean, 
people lose the ability to speak and eat, you know, when you have this issue. The hips, of course. And very importantly, I have a student who is also varying this compound so that it can repair damaged spinal disc, which yeah. has similarities with the cartilage that is in joints. These combinations of factors and this overall approach appears to be capable of applying apply to like all of the different joints in the body. We can also change the factors in such a way that it makes bones, hmm. which is really important because of osteoarthritis and also because sometimes in these joint damages, it's the underlying chondral bone that also needs to be restored. So, so you we really have a, are looking at reversing the clock. Absolutely. I, I love to hear that at my age. <laughs> what is your timeline for human clinical trials? And how does somebody go about connecting with you on clinical trials? It uh, really depends right now on how these large animals trials turn out. They are extremely expensive to perform. And we've only been able to do a handful of pigs. You know, what we need to do is like, actually, unfortunately, to make sure things are absolutely safe, we need to do the trials in pigs. And then afterwards, we need to do the trials in monkeys. That's how it's traditionally done. So and the, then trajectory, the trajectory of the clinical trials is going to be based on funding, correct? If funding was not an issue, we can do most of the large animal trials within a year. And then hopefully we can do the paperwork and we can begin the clinical trials. And initially, we're thinking we're going to try in joints that have some kind of joint damage or have some kind of salvage therapy. Right. So what you're saying is in that circumstance, there's really no downside other than you can still do this other procedure. So why not try it in a place where there's no downside? That's right. So that's what we intend to do as our first site. We'll induce cartilage to form in that area. And if everything works out well, then it's great. Then we'll move on to other joints. So this is the first podcast I've recorded since ARPA-H announced mm -hmm. its Nitro program. So mm -hmm. hopefully there'll be funding forthcoming, which will allow you to accelerate your trajectory through those clinical trials. I hope so too. But you know, there's a lot of people vying for the same funds, people who are tangentially working on so-called mesenchymal stem cells are going to be trying to get the same funds. We're hoping a trickle of it may come in our way, but if we have sufficient funding, then we can go beyond just the fingers. We can start testing it in patients who are undergoing microfracture, and we can give them these compounds, younger patients. And we're optimistic based on what we've seen so far that it would give them a completely different outcome. Fantastic. This is not just about replacing cartilage. We need to address the underlying causes that made the cartilage disappear. As you replace the cartilage, have you considered combinant therapies? Yes. Actually, in a recent um, story that the lab published in the journal Nature, we also approached the question of why it is that when people get older, their immune system becomes more inflamed. From the recent pandemic, you know, we learned that people who are older tends to develop more severe symptoms when affected by COVID versus younger patients. And what other investigators found was that that is partly due to the fact that older patients 
their immune system are already on a very high inflammatory threshold. And when the virus comes along and triggers that inflammatory immune system, in the case of COVID, it starts attacking the lungs. And that's what leads to the severe symptoms that older patients experience. So we asked, what is the source of this age-related inflammation? And it turns out it comes from the aged skeletal stem cells. Hmm, interesting. Because their aged skeletal stem cells is also responsible for making bone marrow. And their environment that the aged skeletal stem cell makes encourages the blood-forming stem cells that are there to become pro-inflammatory and make pro-inflammatory cell types. So one of the other signals that we try to target is signals that is related to aspects of aging, right. including inflammation. Are you working in senescence at all? Absolutely. So senescence are cell types, so-called zombie cell types. They're basically mature cells, but they have lost the ability to become replaced. If and you are too pro-inflammatory, correct? And they can be pro-inflammatory. But if you flag these cell types of antibodies, they can be cleared. Or if you give them the right signals, they may become chemically rejuvenated. Hmm. So that is also a hope. Really but, is the, the, the yeah. fountain of youth, isn't it? Right. Senescent cell types are basically cartons of milk that's been left at the store for too long. If they're there, the person who's supposed to be stocking the milk doesn't realize that we need new milk, you know, because he's working like you think about it in, in terms of a supermarket. OK, there's a guy in the back who's basically loading up the fresh cartons of milk or eggs, actually. But he's in the back. He doesn't know what's going on in the front. And all he can tell is, well, are there racks filled or not? Right. So there is like senescent cells there, cells that have basically gone way past their expiration date and they're sitting there. He doesn't realize that he has to supply them with new cartons of milk. Yeah, I used to work in a grocery store. I remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy in the back, right? I mean, he's a really, he's, he plays his central role because he's the stem cell. Right. So if the stem cells sees, right, that there's another cell type there, he doesn't realize he have to make new cells. When you clear the senescent cells and the stem cells becomes activated and they can make new cell types. Chuck, what are the biggest challenges for your procedure, as well as more broadly, the quest for a cure for osteoarthritis? Well, I think we haven't actually tried it in patients before. People are a different animal from monkeys and the model organisms are model animal partners that we use. So we're really not sure what we're going to see, you know, until we actually start putting them in patients. But we have a very talented team here at Stanford, and we have great collaborators at other institutions. And we're confident that we can take this approach to patients and be able to sufficiently deal with and engineer and science our way out of problems that we encounter as we start conducting these trials. You know, so the biggest challenge is funding. The biggest challenge is funding. Exactly. You know, we, we want to get to patients as soon as we can. We're doing all of the necessary cell types in pigs, but there's a lot of variability in people. They all have different signals. There's phenotypes, know, yeah. There's different phenotypes. You know, would this compound work as well in women as in men? Would this compound work in older people? 
versus younger people, you know? Yes. And if what happens if they're diabetic, right? So what happens if they smoke? So we think that in these different circumstances, we're going to have to tweak the formula a little bit. Yep. What do but, you see as being the biggest opportunity going forward, Chuck? I think it would be marvelous, and we're very optimistic, to try and regenerate cartilage. And we have this compound that can grow cartilage right now. If we were able to succeed, it would create a great opportunity for other types of stem cell therapy. Because cartilage is a type of tissue that is thought to have no ability to regenerate. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And our approach would demonstrate, right, that you can restore completely lost tissue just by giving the stem cells that are there the right factors. Actually, some colleagues at my institution at the Stem Cell Institute at Stanford are already trying variations of this approach to see if they can get other types of tissues such as cardiomyocytes in the heart to regenerate, or even the brain, getting cells that are in the brain that are dormant to become activated and to make new neurons or new glia. So is that for stroke repair and for heart attack repair? Stroke, heart repair, and stroke or Alzheimer's. Yes. So it would also work in eyes. Yes, exactly. For macular degeneration, okay. we want to regrow those retinal ganglial cells. Yes. Perfect. Very exciting work that you're doing. Thank um, you. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much. If you'd like to make a contribution to support the emerging osteoarthritis cures, you can do that on our website. Just click the donate button. Angry at Arthritis is your platform to take action to end this disease. You don't have to be a Rockefeller. A $5 contribution here or there certainly adds up. Let's not get angry at arthritis. Let's get even.